but in the meantime, Saqib was holding fort. Uh, so today we have something very interesting. We have a section with Saqib and his sister, Samar, um, which I think will help break some of the monotony that, that happens sometimes if just the two people are there. Uh, so we'll be listening to some of that stuff. And then there are a lot of topics today um, on the board. And some of those include Andy Murray, Djokovic. Uh, just the tennis year in general. Yes, the tennis year in general. So we're going to do a review and uh, let's get started, Sakib. Hey, welcome, Anand. So yeah, last we spoke, uh, a lot has happened. Uh, we both uh, kind of look silly now, putting so much stock in Kei Nishikori to run the tables. And uh, boy, that's why predictions and uh, projecting this kind of stuff is a, a scary thought. Happens all the time. Nishikori and, you know, some of these guys, Raonic, we've been backing these guys for years and we always see the big Actually, four let me cut you off. I mean, Raonic, <laughs> come on, give the guy, throw the guy a bone. He ended the year as number three and he played Murray really neck to neck. He was dictating a lot of those baseline exchanges. So Raonic is a guy who, along with Nishikori, they both proved us wrong in the opposite manner. Kay, I mean, as a fan, I'm personally so disappointed. The guy really cannot put two matches together. I've seen him courtside in uh, New York, in Paris, and he always uh, looks like the guy, okay, he's going to break the drought and just go on. But the guy just gets exhausted. And uh, I'm sure he has all, you know, his team, to, to, uh, the two coaches and the trainers. But uh, Nishikori just cannot pull two matches together. And that's such a disappointment. Sakib, I mean, I know you think Ravanich is a little different from Nishikori. To me, they are the same. Did the same exact thing. I mean, Ravanich, if you look at his results through the course of the year, one tournament win, and he's not really, really won any of the big matches, except for the one against Roger Federer, who was about 50%. Uh, but having said that, I mean, I, for me, both are disappointments in, in their own way. Uh, Nishikori doesn't show up for some of the big matches, but typically that's back-to-back. But he's got the big win against Andy Murray at the US Open, and Ravanich, I don't think, has a comparable win. Yeah, Ravnik played a major final, played uh, semis in Australia, and then was a match point away from pretty much giving Novak Djokovic the ranking. So I think uh, Ravnik supplanted uh, Stan Wawrinka from the number three spot. So given all his shortcoming, and his, I know his tennis is not really appealing in this uh, era of shot making. He's a throwback player, which we have said before. I know you're not a big fan of Milos, but uh, just give the guy his credit. I mean, he ended the year as number three. Yeah, I think he'd make a good number three. I think that that's really what it is. <laughs> I mean, we're talking about winners. We're talking about who can uh, beat Djokovic, uh, who can beat Andy Murray. And uh, I don't see either of these guys, to be honest. Uh, who? I, I, let me put it this way. If I had to place my next dollar, it's not coming out of this generation with Raonic and Nishikori. No, th- th- that's for sure. I mean, this generation has been lost. Even I, I, I think most uh, tennis fans agree. Disappointing. Yeah, you you call them the lost generation or the generation that just didn't make because other guys didn't uh, haven't vacated their offices. So between Goffin, Dimitrov, Nishikori, and Milos, uh, yeah, you, I don't think anyone will win a slam. And I still, if I have to pick one, I think it's going to be Milos, maybe somewhere at Wimbledon. Yeah, the- I mean, look at this, Sakib. Uh, you say that the other guys haven't vacated their offices, but look at Djokovic. He was playing at you know sixty or seventy percent, and he still got to the final at the U.S. Open. These guys could have made him vacate. Yeah, his but they office. were like you know three matches where he didn't have to pretty much win a set. I mean between Eugenie and you know a couple other withdrawals. I mean Djokovic really wasn't tested in the heat of New York. Uh, I'm not saying he wouldn't have made it, but that was also like pretty much a given to him on a platter. Every one of this is an opportunity lost. That's the way I see it. Um, 
Well, let's hope next year is a little different. I, I, I'm desperate for one to see a new player come through. Uh, as much as I'm desperate to see Roger Federer come back and win a slam. Um, but really, it's not happening between Raonic and Nishikori. And uh, I think you, you and I disagree on this now. Uh, okay, let's keep Fed aside because I think Fed deserves a podcast or at least two podcasts since we are fanboys at or heart. Or ten. <laughs> <laughs> so, so if you were uh, doing a takeaway from the year, who are your three most improved players or who showed like uh, rapid growth despite the ranking or, you know, no increase in the ranking? Right. One is Del Potro, which is an obvious pick. I mean, this is the guy who beat all of these guys this year. Uh, Djokovic, Mari, Rafa. Except Roger. Yes. Of course. <laughs> because they didn't play. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, Del Potro is the obvious choice. We're all looking to Sasha Zverev uh, as the next big thing. And I think he had a really strong year um, for a 19-year-old coming on the tour. Uh, we don't have the tour 19-year-olds winning slams anymore. So, this is as strong as it happens. And um, the third player, really, I mean, everybody's talking about uh, Jack Sock. And uh, they're talking about Moffies. These I guys see are... you, you more than anyone talking about Sock. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true. That's true. Uh, even I, even if I'm talking about Sock, the problem for me is I just don't see him as a threat in a slam. I, I see him winning a couple of important matches, probably ending up with something like, you know, Raonic. Um, but for me, I would be happy to see Raonic. Oh, please, Jack Sock won't sniff a Grand Slam <laughs> final. I mean, give Milos his due. Let's, uh, let's agree on that. Yeah, so I, I know Sakib on your side, you, you're probably thinking team, right? He's the guy that's going to break out. Uh, he broke out, I think, uh, even prior to this year. He definitely had his best ranking. I was thinking more like uh, Luca Pui, uh, someone you had uh, uh, predicted great things at the Open. And I think he's one guy. And then, of course, uh, Juan Martin Del Potro coming back from the dead. Uh, No-brainer there. The guy uh, absolutely is a comeback player of the year. And uh, then there's this one guy who polarizes tennis opinions more than anyone. It's Nick Kyrgios. He's also the breakout. He's also the biggest disappointment of the year. Don't you agree? I refuse to talk about Nick Kyrgios. Uh, I think he's a jerk. I think he's overrated also. Um, he's definitely got a lot Come of on, talent. you're a guy who grew up idolizing McIndoe. <laughs> Nick Kyrgios is not a jerk. He's just like, uh, he's lost sheep. He'll come around. I mean, he's a young guy. I mean, just fine. He makes some comments. And uh, I think he's just playing to the audience. In this era, I think it's just not ha- enough having talent. I think you need to have a work ethic. I need to, you need to have a strong, strong desire to win. You're playing against three or four of the best players of all time. And I just don't see Kyrgios stepping up to that level anytime soon. Maybe, maybe it'll change if he has a no, coach. But, but with all fairness, uh, take his uh, persona and his comments out. My question was the three breakout players or your takeaways. I mean, the guy played after Federer and Nadal probably the most limited schedule because he was banned or he was injured. Uh, he still came with an outside chance of qualifying for Barclays. I think his ranking is, what, 12 or 13? So, uh, in that regard, you have to count him. It was a major success. I, I think what might happen with Kyrgios is he'll fall outside the top 100, get a coach. Uh, I think he might go the Andre Agassi route. Uh, we'll hold you accountable on this because this is not happening. Kyrgios is going to make a Grand Slam semis. You heard it here first. All right. Uh, you said it. But uh, let's go back to Luca, uh, Luca Pui, right? Uh, I, I'm big on his game. I, I think he's, he's just got every shot in the book. Um, I had the opportunity to watch him courtside at the US Open this year, and it was phenomenal. He came back um, from two sets to one down to beat uh, Patista Agut, and um, I thought it was a great match. But one thing that struck me about uh, Luca Sakib was that this guy needs to start winning matches easy. Uh, every match seemed to go to four or five sets. He came back and won. He showed great heart. But sometimes, you know, the early matches, how they play out, 
really uh, makes a difference in how, how they do in the end. I mean, we saw this with Nishikori too in the past as he would have some tough five setters and he'd completely run out of steam by the time he got to, say, the semis of uh, the finals. Yeah, agreed on Luka Pui because Batista Agur is uh, one of the hardest uh, outs in men's game. He won't give you anything for free, so that was a good win and then he backed it up by beating uh, Rafa Nadal in the next round. Uh, Pui, is, is a, he joined the party late because the conversation was about themes, Verev and Kyrgios and uh, even Chorich. So, Pui, kudos to him for fulfilling uh, some of the potential that's been talked about. And you know what, it's a good thing if he's getting out five set matches because the French players a lot of time are not uh, considered mentally tough and uh, Richard Gasquet comes to mind or Benoit Paire. So, it's good if he's winning these five setters, but yeah, uh, he has to make uh, life easy. He has to have some energy reserve if he can make those second weeks uh, th- because that's where the tournament is decided. Okay, so Akib, so speaking of, uh, so we talked about who we think is a breakout. What about the players that um, we thought uh, are on their way down? Uh, do, you, do you see that trajectory continuing to go down? Players like Rafa, who do you think is going to fade out next year? Look, even if Rafa were to fade, I mean, Rafa has a lot of miles. I mean, the kind of physical tennis he's played... Um, and he's won 14 slams, been year and number one for more than, I think, two years, if not three. So that is a very different category. You can't just club anyone else with him because uh, he's one of the big four, and I still think there might be uh, a late push left, uh, at least at Roland Garros. But uh, to answer your question and taking other names, uh, Dimitrov, you know, is consistent. Uh, He continues to disappoint, but did make a surge uh, post-Wimbledon. So I'm not going to buy that stock, but he does look on his way back. He has recovered from the Roger Rashid curse. Yeah, but who's going to fade out, Saqib? That's my question. <laughs> oh, it's not who faded out. Who's going to fade out? Yes. Uh, I think Dominic team will continue to struggle of the young guys because uh, this is the... So you think he's peaked? No, he hasn't peaked. I think it's the, the sophomore curse. I think people have figured him out and then he has to just... Uh, first, he has to cut down his schedule. I don't know if he's playing just for the paycheck or he just doesn't know what a top player does because uh, look at everyone who has had success. People play a cut-down schedule. And this guy already has signed up for more than nine events uh, in the first two or three months. So that's one guy who I think who will again resurface around clay. But I think he might have some, uh, his results will tail off in the beginning. Do you think he has a game actually to do well on grass and hard courts? Because uh, again, he's another player who I think is a little overrated. I mean, he is extremely good on clay. Yes, he, he did well on grass in the, in the warm-up tournaments. But that was, he was playing a bunch of guys who, who were settling in. Um, I, I, again, don't see see that that big shot uh, and, you know, the big game that, that's going to win slams. Uh, I think the return of serve and I think his positioning, that's what I've read. Again, I'm no tennis coach, so I'm just gathering stuff that I've read about him. I think that's going to hold him back. But his, he has a good team and Gunther Bresnik has even dropped the likes of Ernest Gulbis just to focus on Dominic team. So, they probably are very aware. Uh, if his return game improves, improves he, you know, he has, he has shown good patterns. So, there's no reason why he wouldn't keep this ranking in the long run and uh, definitely is my pick to win uh, Roland Garros in the next two or three years. Oh, wow. Uh, that's a big pick. But uh, then let's talk about the King of Clay. Do you think next year is his last on the tour or do you think he's got uh, another year beyond that? We're talking about Rafa, of course. Again, only Rafa can answer this best because he's a man who's come back from numerous injuries and uh, keeps coming back and has defied a lot of naysayers in the past. But yeah, the trajectory is has been consistently going down. Uh, but his uncle, I think, was... Uh, he hasn't won a five-set match that I can remember in the last two or three years. In fact, he's lost so many matches from winning positions. Um, I actually think he's going to be 
next year is his last on the tour. That's what I wow. would think. Uh, wow. Well, uh, that's a bold prediction. I think he might still play more than a few years, but uh, definitely his confidence is not where it used to be. And uh, those close matches are ones when they start slipping, you know, it's not the same. So probably related, Saqib, I, I, I want to ask you, but what are the matches, memorable matches of the year um, that, that you can recall? Um, there were so many good matches this year, but uh, what's your favorite? Uh, favorite match or the most uh, important or impactful match? I would say the favorite match. Let's start there. Uh, we, we know some of the impactful ones. Okay, uh, favorite is easily hands down. When Chilich was up two sets at Wimbledon quarterfinals and we all know what happened after that. Yeah, I mean, this was Roger's best match of the year. I think it showed us that he still has stuff, man. He was he was 50% and he played maybe the match of his life to come back and win that one. Uh, I, I'm so optimistic about next year because... Yeah, we are not, we are not going to talk much about Roger because we will do a special podcast. So, <laughs> let's stick to the topic. Fair enough. But, but you know, Sakib, that, that fourth set, that reminded me of the match against Rafa. I mean, he came back and won that fourth set and then... This time, the result was different. Uh, he won 11-9 in the tiebreak in that fourth set. Um, and Chilich, he's had some really, really tough matches this year where he's lost from two sets to Love Up, lost to Sock, lost to Roger, and now Del recently Potro. Delpo. Yeah, yeah, the Davis Cup. I mean, that that would shatter anyone's confidence. Do you think Chilich has, uh, has a way out of this? Uh, I'm sure it's going to be tough because every time he's going to be in the situation against a top player in a top uh, moment... Uh, it's all mental, so he he has to just get past that. And there's no other way of doing it by actually just doing it. So, wish him all the best. Uh, but going back to the other matches, I think, uh, for me, the takeaway match of the second half was Raonic Murray, uh, because that match has a contingency of the number one ranking. Uh, if Murray had lost there, uh, Raonic would have handed Novak Djokovic the number one ranking, and uh, Djokovic destroyed Nishikori after that match. So that was a match, uh, I think it's one of the best three-set matches, considering uh, Murray has gone the distance against K a few days earlier in the week. So even adding yeah, heck what's of at, a revenge match. I yeah, mean, yeah, and adding what's at stake, uh, uh, Murray-Ravnich match is uh, one of my favorite uh, three-set matches of the year. How about you? Yeah, I mean, the Pui match. Uh, again, I, the, the first time I saw Pui was uh, the round before um, against Agut. And I really thought that this guy had some serious stuff. But then I was afraid he was not going to show up for the next match because he had played a five-setter. And that was against Rafa, who was looking pretty good uh, until that point. Um, but then I have to say Pui played the match of his life. I think this is, even though he made the quarters at Wimbledon, I think this is where he announced his arrival to the, to the big, big league. Fair enough. And uh, we should do an honorable mention to Misha Zverev's uh, match against Nick Kyrgios. <laughs> where Nick just, you know, didn't show up. Tanked. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that was significant for other reasons. Because, like I said, it, it's going to tell me that Kyrgios is dropping out of the top 100. But I'm not going there again. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. So, who is, uh, again, besides, besides the players, who is coach of the year? I know you've said Magnus Norman. Are you still sticking to that? Yeah, very much so. Uh, I think the thing with Wawrinka is you, you have to realize he's not going to be the kind of player who's going to show up at every Grand Slam. But to keep him focused over a period of three years and continue to be a contender. I mean, this is a guy who could easily have won a slam and walked away from the sport. I mean, this happens so many times in, in, in our history where you have these breakout players win a slam and never, never again uh, stay at that level, especially at Wawrinka's age. I think Magnus Norman has really worked on him mentally. Has, has I think he's made him believe in himself to the point where he thinks he can be consistently in that top three, uh, so, top two, three. 
All right, so talking about Stan, which has been a bigger surprise according to you, his Roland Garros win or the win at Flushing Meadows this year? I think it is uh, the Roland Garros win for me uh, because I just didn't think, uh, I mean, uh, the way uh, Djokovic, how badly he wanted and the fact that he beat Rafa, um, that was a done deal at that point. Um, and Wawrinka had had his big matches against Djokovic and lost uh, before that. And so I, I just did not see that coming um, on that surface. Boy, I mean, that, that, that was a memorable match uh, again, uh, Sakib. Okay, I'll agree that Magnus Norman has been the standout coach if you have to pick someone because uh, he really made someone who probably seemed content being a top 10 player and he has uh, given three slam titles in this partnership. Uh, But not just to be purely different, I would still say he has done something similar every year. So for me, this year, the standout uh, coaching job is Jamie Delgado. We keep talking about super coaches Mm -hmm. and I think we should dedicate a podcast especially to it once... uh, uh, we have enough content, but uh, my vote just goes to Jamie Delgado. We don't hear much about him, and I'm old-fashioned in a lot of regard, and I think that's what a coach's job is. He shouldn't be tweeting. He shouldn't be doing press conferences. Andy Murray, after Amelie Moresmo left, uh, was losing to Novak Djokovic, and uh, I think Jamie Delgado should get some credit for bringing that uh, uh, next major after a gap of three years. Of course, Lendl was part of it too, but... Uh, That's the asterisk, and it's an asterisk that goes both ways, right? You know, you could say you don't give credit to Lendl because just because he showed up, Murray didn't win that slam. But then the same thing goes that, you know, Murray probably would have, wouldn't have won a slam if Lendl was not on his team. It's, 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 it's I, a I think one. we spoke about this one, I think, a few podcasts ago, and I was the one who said uh, Lendl and Murray is a special connection, I think, because their careers uh, pretty much mirror images of each other's. So I agree that Lendl brings that mental toughness, that uh, believe mentality. But uh, how much is training and prep important at this level when you're talking of Andy Murray and uh, Djokovic? I mean, how much is it mental, right? You 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 bring a guy like Becker, you bring a guy like uh, Edberg. These guys are, I think, they're telling them something that goes beyond technique and you know how to play a game strategically. I think it it goes into instilling a certain level of confidence. I, I think it's more like. Uh, uh, it's more like a prep speech, which is more believable, Marian Vaida telling you know something technically or Boris Becker telling how he felt the night before a U.S. Open final. So I think these super coaches are more like uh, gurus and uh, this is more like Ivy League education pretty much. You know, This, this is just a brand of achievement. But uh, I think Jamie Delgado, uh, Severin Luthies and Marian Vaida of the world, they actually do uh, the work week in, week out and uh, sometimes that just gets underwritten because in this day of uh, media and uh, we are so obsessed with the super coach, like uh, NBA super coaches. Uh, I think a lot of work is done, and uh, we just don't give enough credit to the yeah. I mean, I, coaches. you know, one area where I'll, this is I completely agree because um, I was watching a match with uh, Jeannie Bouchard uh, a couple of years ago, and she's winning this match really easy against you know somebody on the tour, and her coach comes, and you know, in the women's tour, you have the coach uh, can come in and actually give them a pep talk. Coach comes and gives a pep talk at four zero. Uh, Bouchard leading in the third set and she didn't win a game after that and then at that point you start to question does this really really help the player at this point or I mean is it something else right is is it a whole different kind of prep fitness I mean you look at Agassi we were talking about Gilray's having the impact on his um, career so I do agree I mean that there is there is a lot that goes on behind the scenes outside I think in the practice courts in how they how they prepare themselves uh, to be fit, uh, I think that plays a big big role in how how well they do. 
agree. That's uh, that, that's where I'm trying to point out. Like, there's a lot of hard work. It's just not the pep speech that uh, prep speech that Becker's giving or Lendl is giving. So my uh, vote still stays with Delgado. Still, Sakib, I'll say one thing. I'd love to be in that room with Becker and Djokovic and see what what in the world does Becker say to Djokovic. <laughs> that motivates him because uh, when I see him tweet, man, the guy, sometimes it sounds ridiculous. Yeah, Becker is a Donald Trump of tweeting, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope he's better as a coach than president. Uh- <laughs> You know, one thing I'm following uh, obsessively as a tennis fan outside, I think the top 10 players is, you know, the junior store and some of the other, um, you know, the players outside the top 100. The upcoming guys. The, the upcoming guys. I mean, Sakib, who's on your list? I mean, who are you watching out for? I usually don't pay much attention. Uh, not as well versed a fan uh, like you are. But for the last, uh, I think in, in the fall, I've uh, followed a few challenger draws. And I see this resurgent in the Russian men's tennis scene. And... Uh, Daniel Medvedev stands out. The guy did enough to earn a top 100 ranking. And I think uh, he could he could be doing some exciting things next year. So he's uh, my uh, he's, he's a guy on watch for next year. Yeah. And uh, for me, it's, it's a 17-year-old kid, uh, Denis Shapovalov. I hope I'm saying his name right. But I think his name will be on everybody's lips by the end of next year. Uh, so Shapovalov actually famously has a win against Nick Kyrgios this year. Yeah, in uh, Toronto, right? In Toronto. Um, 17-year-old, he's got a big game, lefty serve. Um, his lefty backhand is a single-hander. Uh, reminds me of Justine Eno. Uh, check it out on YouTube, guys, if you're, if you're uh, ever on it. Um, and More like Guy Forger, come on. No, he, he's got <laughs> he's got some flair on that backhand. No, he, he does absolutely. And um, and I I think uh, Dennis is going to be the, one of the next big things. A very exciting player. Won Junior Wimbledon this year as well at seventeen, which is not easy because even eighteen, nineteen year old kids these days look pretty big. And yeah. uh, this guy came and beat beat some of the top players now. Uh, talking about the next big things, uh, one of the very loyal uh, followers of our blog, uh, Florian uh, from Austria. He wants to know what do we, what do we think of this under twenty one uh, uh, Masters or World Tour finals, which the uh, ATP has added for next year. Yeah, I mean it's 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 a good idea, right? Because really? frankly, <laughs> you know the way I'm thinking about it is nineteen year olds are not winning slams anymore. Give them something to win, make them famous, and hopefully when they grow into their games, they're contending, and you know you have a loyal audience following. Uh, I don't like that because you know you can. It's pretty simple. It's black and white. It's juniors, and then it's a tour. So what are we trying to say? Like this is the under twenty one World Tour final, and then the grown ups play the next week. Look, people are not ready. Sometimes Andy Murray I, I, I no, was this telling is, me this. this he moved for... to Spain because Rafa was ready for the men's tour, and this guy was still playing junior tennis. No, th- that's okay. When you, as a boy, you know, you're still growing up, you do these things. But once you're on the tour, I mean, you just don't do. The, I think this is a marketing thing because they're so worried about life after Federer and Nadal, so they just want to market these stars in a desperately possible way. And I think it's belittling. Once you are playing with the men. No matter, it, it's the problem it's the is tour. the problem is that Chorich and Zverev are not going to play a Grand Slam semi together anytime soon. Like we saw, saying it's fine. Then let let them be. Let them find a way to be more meaningful on the tour. Why the, are you giving them a false sense of hope? I this mean, is why? a way you cre- start creating a rivalry. I mean, you start seeing, you know, Taylor Fritz lose to uh, Zverev, and then you say, okay, does it have it in him to come back and win in a couple of years? And you start to create that story here, and you're not we're missing okay. that story. I know right? our audience must be sick of going back to Boris Becker, but then when Boris Becker won the Wimbledon in '85. He, the boys' champion, was I think a year and a half older than him. But he so, was a freak, right? We, fine. Uh, we, we, I mean, then we, we we would go with a freak. We won't just uh, 
want to give a false sense of security for these guys to play their own masters. I think that's a bad idea. See, the other thing that's going on is, Saqib, I mean, you see this in other sport, professional sports. You draft a player really high in uh, you know, the draft and they don't get to play immediately as a starter, right? Yeah, but that's a team sport, Anand. I mean, you can't always bring team with individual here. That's why a lot of, pe- a lot of people choose tennis because uh, they can't break into the soccer teams, you know, the respective countries. Let me, let me of basketball. ask you this: like Grigor, right, is a great example of a guy who, who was, let's say, let's call him, he was drafted into a professional tennis league. He starts underperforming, right? I mean, he had a little bit of a good year in between, but this guy, honestly, if he had matured into the sport, he could have been a much better player than what he is now. But, but all that pressure, all that exposure coming in so early, I think it really uh, it didn't help his game. I think that's the world we live in. Uh, Going back to the glorious article you wrote for Crick Info, it's the same thing, the media age we live in. If Grigor had come into, uh, say, 90s, where there's no social media and he had pretty much aped his game around Roger Federer, he would have gone unnoticed. But now there was uh, so much scrutiny about his every move. Who is he dating? Who is his new coach? Why can't he be like Fed? And in, in, in reality, he just copied Federer, but that doesn't mean he'll be the next Federer. Think about so, this story, Sakib. Shapovalov versus Fritz for the under-21 Masters title, and one of them wins. It's a big deal. Let's say it becomes a big deal. And then they get to play Andy Murray or someone in the first round of the next slam. That's going to be a much bigger match for people to watch uh, than Denis Shapovalov. I'll bet you not a whole lot of people listening to this blog have heard of him. And, you know, they, they, they're like, who is this guy playing Andy Murray? I think a lot more people will be willing to follow the sport if they identify with these names early. As we did. When in no, I think so. Again, I think uh, we we may be not agreeing because I think it's a cop out on the part of ATP. They're so desperate because they know Federer's not going to be around. This six months gave them a reality check what the future is going to look like. So they're just trying their extra best to showcase these guys. And uh, I just don't agree. Once you're on the tour, there is no boys or seniors. It's just the tour. Fair so, enough. Uh, what about IPTL? What do you think about that? I think we should conclude the podcast. I think it's a joke. I mean, it's, a, it's, it's not, we, we, I think we moved away from tennis now. Yeah, this is, this is not tennis. This is just like, I think Federer and Serena Williams, I think they're doing some favors to Mahesh Bhupati, who probably is a good friend. Uh, this concept is not going to take off. It, it's based on cricket's uh, model of IPL. But those IPL matches, even though they're a different format than real cricket, it's still competitive. Here it's a joke. I mean, this format is not going anywhere. And I'm thinking maybe one more edition of IPTL, and that's it. Maybe. And maybe this this would have worked in in a different uh, situation. But with the Grand Slam matches being so competitive, with such great storylines among the top four players, and I think, uh, frankly, the whole year is packed right now with with a whole bunch of tournaments. Look, you and me, we are from India. We know how tennis-deprived Indian fans are. But they are real fans. They just want a quality match. So a real fan probably would go check this out once because, you know, that's the closest Roger or Rafa came to their part of the world. But after that, they know it's not a real tennis match. They'd rather spend their money to Chennai or even fly, take a flight to Dubai where some actual real tennis is played. So IPTL, I don't know what Mahesh Bhupati was thinking. It's just like, you know, it's, it's not going to work. We, we have, I think, what we call an all-inclusive podcast. Uh, we like to bring our friends, uh, other tennis fans on board with us to have discussions. Um, while I was gone in India, Sakib's uh, sister Summer uh, actually spent some time with him on this podcast and she had some very interesting questions from him. So we thought we should share that with you. Um, say if you had an hour to spend with any player, any player, no restrictions, and they were willing and able to do so, past or present. No restrictions. What are we doing? <laughs> I mean. Interview? 
um, interview, coffee. They had an hour to, of their time to give you. Um, past or present player, who would it be and why? Uh, just to pick uh, the brains, uh, you know, what goes on and what's uh, not related to fans and media, uh, hands down it's going to be Safin because I don't think he ever held his punches back. He would just say whatever and, you know, people kind of label him crazy. And similarly from today's uh, guys, it will be Gulbis, same, uh, same persona, uh, no hold back, just give your opinions, yeah. So those two guys have to be the more uh, interesting uh, personalities that have come around in the tennis scene in a while. Uh, I would agree. Uh, for me, too, it would be Marat Safin. Yeah, but we all know, yeah. Reasons. Yeah, exactly. We all know uh, your fixation with Marat. So, yeah, what else you got? Um, looking at the current Big Four, who, in your opinion, will be the best coach post-retirement? Say, you know, like another five or ten years from now. Uh, hands down, Murray, because uh, I've always believed the most talented guys in many sports, like even Jordan or even Tendulkar and, you know, other... Uh, figures when the game comes easy, and I'm not saying Roger is not a patient man, but I just don't see this kind of a guy coaching a player. I always see the workmen like the couriers, the Lendels, uh, something, some some people who have worked harder at their craft, and success hasn't come right away. So it's going to be Murray, and even though Nadal has been a prodigy and he won a lot of slams uh, at a younger age, I just think he would also be a decent coach if he ever chose to be. But uh, between these four, it's Andy for sure. Okay, and now um, the final question. Do you think Murat Safin will be the next James Bond? Okay, then. So thanks for listening, everyone. We should conclude on this note. Uh, we'll share the record on their podcast soon. Bye. <laughs>